Turn our Bibles together to the book of Daniel and the 8th chapter. You'll recall that the first six chapters of Daniel are chapters recording personal incidences from uh, history. Uh, prophecy certainly is intertwined with that personal history. But as we come to the final ch- six chapters of Daniel, there are visions here that are fully loaded with, uh, with prophecy. There are four prophecies recorded for us in the six chapters, Daniel 7, 8, 9, and then 10, 11, and 12. Tonight we come to chapter 8, which begins by saying, In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. Daniel, by this, dates the vision for us. It occurred in about 550 B.C. It is three years after the last vision that he had, between two and three years uh, later. Uh, Daniel is, by this time, about 70 years of age. So he's getting to be a senior saint. And all of his life, from those early teens, he has walked with God. He is a man that God has blessed with position and prominence in the uh, empires in which he served in positions of importance. He tells us that uh, he looked in the vision and it came about while I was looking, he says, that I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in the vision and I myself was beside the Uli Canal. So Daniel, although he is in the city of Babylon, in the vision, sees himself some 230 miles to the east in a city called Susa. It was the capital, Susa was, of the ancient land of Elam in Abraham's day. After Daniel, it became a city of prominence again because it became the royal city of the Persians. Uh, This is where Esther lived. This is where Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king, the city of Susa. But in 550 B.C., in Daniel's day, Susa was not a city of that much prominence. Susa is famous in archaeological history because it was there that the Code of Hammurabi was found, which some of you would be familiar with. And in the city of Susa, archaeologists also have uncovered the very palace in which Esther uh, lived under the reign of Xerxes, the king of Persia. Now, the Uli Canal is mentioned here, and uh, that is a little more difficult to locate. However, it is understood to be an artificial man-made canal. Some identify it with one that is about 900 feet wide and which... Uh, stretches from one river to another, and it passed in that day near the city of Susa. So Daniel gives us the date, he gives us the place that he sees in the vision. This vision, it seems, was received during the daytime, not during the nighttime as part of of, uh, his dreaming, but during the daytime he had a vision of certain beasts. And these beasts that we see, uh, namely a ram and a goat, have symbolic meaning, as we will understand. Uh, Apparently, 
from what he says in the chapter, there were other beasts that he saw as well. And so that's the reason I named this the Gentile Zoo, this message tonight, because in this chapter he seems to see an array of beasts. He talks mainly about two of them. Just uh, by way of passing, let me mention that the Hebrew language is used once again, beginning with this chapter in Daniel. You remember back in chapter 2, it switched to Aramaic, and then now it comes back to the Hebrew in the original uh, copies of this. Now, this vision that we're going to look at tonight fills in some of the detail regarding the two middle kingdoms that we talked about last week in the vision of chapter 7. Those two middle kingdoms of the four empires are Medo-Persia and Greece. In this vision that came three years later, Daniel is given additional information regarding those two middle kingdoms. Let's take a look now at the vision. He says, I lifted my gaze and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, and one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram butting westward, northward, and southward, and no other beasts could stand before him. So there you get the idea there are other beasts that he sees in his vision. Nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. Now normally a ram has two horns, but this obviously is a little different. <clears throat> the language here can be understood to mean that as Daniel was watching this ram, the horns grew out. Or it may mean that one horn was in front of the other. But the idea is that the one that was obviously second was larger. Now that has significance because uh, the empire of the Medo-Persians, which is represented by this ram, as we'll see, uh, the second of those nations, Persia, became the more dominant of the two. And that is the reason the second horn is seen as being larger. This ram pushes its way in three directions, westward, northward, and southward. And uh, this ram pleased himself, he magged himself, magnified himself, and became great. Now in verse 5, it says, While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. That is, its speed was so fast that the feet didn't even touch the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And so now there is a male goat coming from the west over the whole earth, and he comes with tremendous speed. You may recall that the third kingdom looked at last week, in fact, it might be good just to go back and look at chapter 7 and verse 6. The third kingdom in this vision was symbolized by a leopard, and we noted the four wings that it had uh, on its back, four wings of a bird, which we said last week indicated the speed. A leopard is fast anyway, but this leopard is seen with wings on its back, so it's a very fast animal. Now in the vision that we see in chapter 8, we have a male goat that is moving with tremendous speed across the face of the earth, and it has a conspicuous horn, one that's very prominent, which represents its leader. Now normally goats have two horns, 
to them, just like rams do. And so this is an anomaly. This is a strange-looking ram, or, or goat, rather, that has just one large horn instead of two horns. Well, he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns. And the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him. And there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And so there's a conflict that takes place. Uh, the goat attacks and defeats the ram, even though the goat is a smaller animal. Uh, the, the goat is pictured as being filled with hot fury and anger. Uh, thus, perhaps explaining the, the extra strength that this goat had. The adrenaline was really flowing in this animal. And now in verse 8 it says, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great. And so you understand what he's saying. This goat magnified himself, and then the horn was broken. And in the place of that horn, there grew up, while Daniel was watching, four horns. And then out of one of those horns, there came yet another uh, small horn, he says, which then began to grow exceedingly great, and he mentions it grows toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, a phrase that signifies Palestine or Israel. And it came up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, a reference to God. And it removed the regular sacrifice from him. And the throne of his God's sanctuary was thrown down. The place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice. And it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then... I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? We understand the host mentioned here uh, in this context to refer to the people of God, primarily the Jewish people. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. And so there we have the laying out of the vision. Now Daniel's response is interesting. It says, it came about that when he had seen the vision, he says, I sought to understand it, and behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. 
And so Daniel was struck with the desire to understand what all of this, this vision was about. And as that desire filled his heart, there was a voice, understood by most Bible commentators to be the voice of God, instructing the one who looked like a man nearby, whose name was Gabriel, to come and to give to Daniel the interpretation of it. Now this Gabriel is the same Gabriel that announced the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his birth to Joseph and to Mary. He is the one who had part of the announcement of the coming of Christ. Uh, this is an angelic being, Gabriel, who is in view, and now he ministers to Daniel, giving him understanding. But Daniel was frightened by his appearance and fell on his face. But Gabriel responded by saying, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now we're going to take a look at the interpretation, but before we do that, I want you to notice that phrase here, the time of the end. We'll see something similar in just a moment. While he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. The idea is that he fainted. But he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation. For it, it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Now the language that Gabriel uses here indicates to us that there is something about this vision that he's about to explain that has a double fulfillment. It will have a fulfillment in the time when all of these other things happen, but there is something about the vision that also pertains to the time of the end. Of course the question is the end of what? And the best answer to that, the, the end of Israel's suffering, Israel's domination by the Gentile powers, uh, which is something that's still going on in our day. And so it's yet to the future from our day. Most of the vision that we're going to see here had an historical fulfillment after the days of Daniel, some of it in his day and then afterward. But there is something about it, as we will see, that stretches all the way down to the time of the end, perhaps even the days in which you and I are living. Verse 20 gives us an understanding of what the ram is all about. Gabriel says, now understand, God himself is speaking through Gabriel, telling us the meaning of this vision. <clears throat> the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now it's interesting that this vision came in 550 BC because that was almost the exact time that those two nations formed a coalition. They joined together. And so to Daniel is given the message, the, the ram, which corresponds now to the second kingdom that is represented by the bear in chapter 7. But this ram represents Medo-Persia. This empire primarily grew in three directions, just as the vision had suggested it would. It grew toward the west, toward Babylonia and Syria, and up into Asia Minor. It grew toward the north, geographically, into Armenia, what is today southern Russia up around the Caspian Sea. And it also grew and stretched itself down to the south, around Israel, 
and to Egypt and Ethiopia. Now, if your Bible has maps in the back of it, it may be that there is a map that would give you some of this information. In uh, the Ryrie Study Bible, which I happen to have with me tonight, map number seven outlines for you the empire of uh, the Medes and the Persians. Your Bible may have a similar map in it. If you don't have a Bible with maps, don't feel like you're missing out. Uh, Your Bible isn't inspired or something. Uh, These are just study aids included in some Bibles to to give you the helps right there. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with maps in it, you may want to get a hold of of, uh, a book that would help you. Uh, Unger's Bible Handbook or some other Bible study aid that would give you maps so that you can visualize uh, where these uh, kinds of things took place. Now this nation of the Medes and the Persians became great. In about the time that Daniel got this vision, there was a man who was coming forth strong on the scene in Persia. His name was Cyrus. Up to this point, the nation of Media was the stronger of the two. In fact, the Medes helped to defeat the Assyrians in 612 B.C. They joined together with Babylonia at that time and helped defeat the Assyrians. And so the nation of the Medes was the more powerful nation. But now just about the time Daniel's getting this vision, Persia is starting to come on strong under the leadership of Cyrus. The empire of the Medes and the Persians lasted on the historical scene for about 200 years before it was then replaced by another empire. And that is the next one that is mentioned here. And that is uh, represented by the goat. Gabriel says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Well, the first real king of Greece as an empire was Alexander the Great. Alexander was the son of a prominent man whose name was Philip of Macedon. Alexander was born almost 200 years uh, after Daniel got this vision, 356 B.C. He became ruler of uh, Greece as it was in his time at the age of 20 when his father Philip was murdered. Uh, This young man, Alexander, was brilliant. He had been educated under the famous Aristotle. He was a man who is known as one of the great military strategists of all the ages. He ranks up there with Napoleon as being one of the great military leaders of all times. Uh, One person pointed out that Alexander conquered more foreign soil than any ruler in the history of the world. He attacked Persia not long after he became the king, just a couple of years later. Remember now, the Medes and the Persians are the major dominant force there in the Middle East. But out of the west, over in Asia Minor, Macedon and that area, comes this Greek army 
under the leadership of Alexander the Great, an army of about 40,000 men, we are told, against a force of uh, hundreds of thousands among the Medes and the Persians. But because Alexander was so brilliant as a military strategist, he devised strategy no one had ever seen before because he had a small, fast-moving army. In three battles, over the course of about three years, he defeated the Medes and the Persians. That was in 331. And so at that time, Medo-Persia passes off the scene. The uh, ram has been butted against, and he's down, and the goat tramples him. And Alexander finishes with the Medes and the Persians and marches on. He marched on eastward all the way to the Indus River, to the border of what is today India, and south to the Indian Ocean. And then he turned back toward the west, <clears throat> having conquered everything that uh, he knew that there was to conquer. And he was only 32 years of age. Well, he got back to the city of Babylon, and there he was uh, taken with malaria, he was a man who suffered from alcoholism. He was also greatly disillusioned as a brilliant young man who had conquered the known world. He sat down and wept because there was no one else to fight. As far as he knew, there was no, no more territory to conquer. And in just two days after he got malaria, he died. Uh, he was so weak after getting it that they had to prop him up in bed and they brought his generals by and with uh, just the slightest motions or the nod of the head or even the blink of the eye, he acknowledged them coming by and then he died. Just suddenly broken, this prominent horn on the goat, you see, was just broken away. And Alexander was dead at the age of 32. Well, they tried to hold the empire together, but they couldn't. And four of his generals finally divided up the Greek empire. And that's where the four horns come in, mentioned in 22. It says, the broken horn and the four horns that arose in place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. The four generals are Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. The four of them divided up Alexander's empire. Uh, they were never as strong as he was, but they, they did maintain control in the area that they took over. Cassander took over Macedonia and Greece back there in the west. Lysimachus took over an area called Thracia and the western part of Asia Minor. Again, if you have a Bible with the map in it, it may give you this information. Ptolemy, of course, if you know anything about Egyptian history, you know that there were the Ptolemy kings of, of uh, Egypt, Hellenistic Greek kings down there. So Ptolemy, General Ptolemy, took Egypt and develop that whole uh, uh, Hellenistic influence in Egypt. But the fourth one is the one that uh, we want to focus on because Seleucus, or Seleucus, took Syria and all of the empire to the east of there. <clears throat> and this included uh, Palestine. Now it was from this particular horn, Seleucus, the Seleucids, that another horn eventually arose in this vision called the little horn that is now explained in, from verses 23 and on. 
So you see, Alexander, the great horn, was broken off. There are four generals now that divide up the empire. And now out of one part of that empire, the Seleucid reign brings forth one who was known as, in biblical prophecy, as the little horn. Now it's important to understand that this little horn in chapter 8 is not precisely the same as the little horn in chapter 7. They have a relationship, as we'll see, but the one in chapter 7 refers entirely to the Antichrist of the last days. This little horn in chapter 8 refers to a man who lived in the 2nd century B.C., but who in his evil foreshadows the Antichrist of the last days. Here's where the double fulfillment comes in. What is written here was partially fulfilled in a man that we'll name called Antiochus IV. But it was not entirely fulfilled in him. What is said here in these verses has yet a future fulfillment in the person of the Antichrist. Well, let's go back and take it a verse at a time here. It says, And in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise. And this king, as I have said, comes from the Seleucids. He is Antiochus IV. He adopted the nickname for himself Epiphanes, which means the illustrious. And so you get immediately what Daniel is saying here. He is insolent, proud, arrogant, and he is skilled in intrigue. He was a man who was filled with evil, who was intoxicated entirely with himself. He reigned uh, about 150 years after Alexander the Great. He came to power in 175 B.C., and reigned for about 11 years. That was the latter period of the rule of the Greek Empire. It was going to fall before too many more years to Rome. His character is explained to us here as being insolent, fierce, vicious is the idea. He is a man who is skilled with intrigue. He was able to solve, and history bears this out, he was able to solve tough problems by the use of deceit in his uh, political maneuvering. He was a man of great might or power, but not by his own power, it says in verse 24. What does that mean? Well, it means that Antiochus, who was called Epiphanes, was a man who, though he was in a position of power and and had uh, the personage to fulfill some of that, was really empowered by a force beyond himself. I believe that without doubt this refers to satanic, demonic involvement in his life. He was able to fulfill what he did because he was in league with the devil. And that will be, I think, borne out by what he did. It says he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and will prosper and perform his will, at least temporarily. 
He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. This man is a politician's politician in the worst sense of that word. He will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. We'll talk about that in a moment. But he will be broken without human agency. Well, let's talk about Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus was a man who allowed the Jews to be at ease for a period of time, even though he ruled over Palestine. But as he expanded his rule, he desired to consolidate. And uh, he, he wanted to enforce uh, Hellenism, that is Greek culture. He wanted to unite the people under a single religion rather than having many religions. He wanted to have a test of loyalty because he was a man who feared people who might be disloyal to him. He feared plots and intrigue. And so although he allowed the Jews to carry out their religions up to a point, there came an end to it. About eight years after he came into power, in the year 167, on December the 16th, he ordered that the offering of the sacrifices in Jerusalem, along with the other ceremonies of the temple, that those be stopped. He also ordered on that day that there be set up in the temple a statue of Zeus, from the Greek pantheon of gods. And from that time forward, the Jews were no longer allowed to worship the God of their fathers, but they were to worship Zeus in the temple. Furthermore, he he ordered that uh, the Jews eat pork, the flesh of swine, which was unlawful for them to do. It was uh, an unclean animal, and God forbade them to eat pork. But he ordered them to eat pork as a test of loyalty. He ordered uh, about this same time that none of the male babies should be circumcised, the sign of the, the Jewish covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. So he was a man who came full force against the religion of the Jews, and these things became a test of loyalty. Now, if you want to read about these things and the horrible cruelties that he carried out upon those who refused to go along with him, you can read uh, the Apocrypha, the books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees, because the writer of the Apocrypha records (coughs) this history and goes in, in some cases, to gruesome detail as to what happened to people who refused to go along with Antiochus Epiphanes. So wicked and insane... Uh, was this man that the Jews came up for another name for him. He liked to be called Epiphanes, and behind his back they called him Epimenes. You can hear the similarity. The one means, Epiphanes means illustrious, Epimenes means madman. And so behind their back they called him Epimenes. This terrible persecution of the Jewish people, um, their, their death in the case of Thousands of them continued for a period of time. 
And we are told earlier in the vision that it would be for 2,300 evenings and mornings before the holy place would be properly restored. Now the question is, what does this mean, 2,300 evenings and mornings? Well, i tell you, there are good men on both sides of the argument here. There are two understandings of it primarily. On the one hand, there are those who take this to mean 2,300 days, evening and morning, evening and morning. That's a day. And so they say it's 2,300 days or just something under seven years, about six and a, and a half years. There are others who understand it to mean <clears throat> not days, but 2,300 evening and morning sacrifices would pass before the temple could be properly restored. So if that's the case, then it's 1150 days. And people on both sides of the argument go to great detail to show why they are right. Uh, and you can trace it back to certain dates. I think the, the bottom line for us here tonight is to note this, that it was in December in 165 B.C. that the temple was restored. Uh, this man died, and as a result of his death, uh, the um, leader of the Jews, whose name was Judas Maccabeus, was able to end the persecution and to cleanse the temple and to restore the temple's ceremony. And he did so. And that, by the way, is the reason the Jews celebrate Hanukkah. It is in connection with that event. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> now, Antiochus Epiphanes died a terrible death. He was uh, broken, it says here in Daniel, without human agency, which means that he was not defeated by some uh, military army and killed that way. But after he began to lose battles, he was so filled with insolence and pride. After he began to lose a battle here and there to Judas Maccabeus, uh, he went into shock and grief. And history records that he died from his insanity. Uh, and that his insanity may well have been related to a venereal disease. Now in his action and in his character... Antiochus Epiphanes foreshadows to us a man who will come up in the last days of this age, who will also be a great persecutor of the Jews. And that man is known to us as the Antichrist. As surely as in history, Antiochus Epiphanes, the small horn, the little horn, came forth but was finally broken without human agency. So in the latter time, the time of the end, as Gabriel says it, there will come another ruler who, like Antiochus, at first will be friendly with the Jews, but who will eventually establish in the temple in Jerusalem, which is yet to be rebuilt, <coughs> who will establish in Jerusalem an image of himself, which he will command the Jews to bow down and worship. Now, I would like you to turn to the New Testament just to see this. We only have time to do it in one place, and that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
<coughs> I want you to notice the kind of language that is used here by the Lord through Paul to describe this future Antiochus. <clears throat> in Second Thess- Thessalonians 2, verse 3, it says, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come, that is, the day of the Lord, unless the apostasy comes first, and the man of lawlessness. Now that is the name for Antichrist in this book. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Remember, Antiochus was noted for destroying to an extraordinary degree. This future man will be the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. It is interesting that the historical Antiochus in his reign, minted a coin on which he put his inscription, or his image rather, and there was an inscription underneath his image that said, God manifest. And you see, here we have the future Antichrist with the very same kind of spirit displaying himself as being God manifest. Paul says, don't you remember, I told you these things. He goes on to say, and you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I believe the restrainer is the Holy Spirit of God, and that he is restraining that spirit of lawlessness by the presence, his presence in the church which he indwells. But the church is going to be taken out of the way, you see. And lawlessness will then have no restraint. And it says in verse 8, Then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. And so you see, this future person will be broken too, without human agency. God will break him. He says, that is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, just like Antiochus of old uh, did not have the power in himself to pull off everything he did, but was filled with the devil. So this future man will be the same. He will have all power and signs and false wonders, it says, and with all the deception of wickedness, For those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And so Paul here gives us a very interesting paragraph regarding the future Antichrist. Let me conclude by just making a couple of comments. And we need to go back to Daniel so I can make the first one. I want you to notice Daniel's response to this. In verse 27 it says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Has going to church ever made you sick? Daniel here had a vision from God and the result of the vision was so overwhelming that Daniel was exhausted and he was sick 
for days. He could not carry out the king's business, apparently, during this period of time. You know, the Puritans used to call this the weight of truth. The weight of truth. When there was truth that settled upon them, they called it a weight that sobered them, that caused them to to think carefully and soberly regarding what they had come to understand. That seems to be what happened to Daniel. I was talking to a pastor friend this last week who was at a conference where a man spent two hours preaching on the doctrine of hell. And he said that when this man, who was eloquent and gifted as an orator, was finished, that instead of getting up and leaving the church, the only thing he could do was just sit there in his chair for a period of minutes. The weight of truth. When you and I see what is coming in the future, there's a weight about that. This is not the kind of thing you hear about and you run away and say, Oh, praise God, isn't it exciting? Well, there is an exciting side to it, but it's heavy stuff. And as I mentioned last week, the dear Jewish people whom we love for Christ's sake, these dear people who brought the Savior, through whom the Savior came into the world, Uh, these people who today who are in blindness for the most part, a people whom I hope that we love and desire to win to Christ now. But these dear people, as a nation, are in for some tough days ahead. I was sitting in a meeting yesterday <clears throat> with a man who is one of the noted biblical scholars, I think, across the country. <clears throat> he has preached in thousands of churches on Bible prophecy. We weren't there at the meeting to talk about prophecy, but we got to that subject. And he began to share with us some of the things that he knows and has heard. And uh, he was reminding us of what's taking place in Russia today. That along with the glasnost and perestroika and the additional uh, freedoms that seem to be given to the Russian people, as that is rising, there is something else rising right beside it. And if you've read the paper, you've seen hints of it. Beside this new sense of freedom, there is anti-Semitism rising. Have you read about that? All across Russia, back in the villages, there is a tremendous hatred of the Jewish people is developing. They are blaming the Jewish people for the economic crisis in the Soviet Union. Some of them are blaming the Jews for the collapse of communism. And that is the reason that groups are desperately trying to get Jews out of Russia at this time because they fear that if something happens to Gorbachev the result is going to be another holocaust of the Jews in Russia today. Well the fact is that someday there is going to be another holocaust and the Jewish people are going to be terribly persecuted at the hands of the Antichrist. I notice here the inevitability of biblical prophecy the minute detail that was revealed to Daniel. In fact, the detail here is so minute that liberal scholars who deny that God could give prophecy, who deny a supernatural God, say Daniel couldn't have written this book. 
They say somebody had to write it in Daniel's name after all of these things took place. There's no way that Daniel could have been given this vision by God. But we know that God did give Daniel this vision. And over the course of about 300, 350 years, the exact detail of everything God said came to pass. Now the exciting thing that I mentioned earlier is this, that we're living in a day when God is moving. This gentleman said yesterday, none of us who have studied biblical prophecy expected to happen what has happened in Russia. And he said, none of us understand it either. But he said, one thing we know, God is at work in human history today to a degree that we've not seen God at work so obviously in many generations. God is moving in our world today, folks. He is stirring up the Gentile zoo. And those aspects of biblical prophecy that have not yet been fulfilled will inevitably come to pass. How wonderful to know the Lord and to walk with Him and to have His Word to guide us and to know that we need not fear the future, but we can relax in the hand of God knowing that God is able to care for us whatever the future holds. Now, lest you go away fearing that uh, the Antichrist is going to come upon you, let me just say that I believe the Bible clearly teaches that before the Antichrist comes into prominence, the church is going to be taken out of the world. I don't say that as an escape hatch to the trouble. I say it because I believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that the church will not be here during the tribulation period when the Antichrist comes on so strong and powerfully. God will in that period of time be dealing with the Jewish people once again who are set aside now. But when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, when the church is completed, the church is going to be removed and taken out and then God is going to bring to pass these things that Daniel will be talking to us about in the ninth chapter and uh, in the twelfth chapter. So we've got some exciting things ahead in our study and we must close.